just reflecting on what was being sung, and for a moment I forgot what I was doing. You ever have those moments? It kind of reminds me of the preacher who was dreaming that he was preaching before his congregation, and he woke up and he was. So <laughs> we're very, very fortunate to have the, the music ministers here that we have, the, the wonderful singers, and they're just truly blessed. I don't, I don't know about you, but I just overwhelmed by it sometimes, by the music that we hear from, from church here. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2, I want to kind of pick up on where Norman left off. This is actually part two of Norman's sermon, by the way, if you noticed this morning. He was kind of short, right? So uh, maybe he'll make up next time or I'll just do it tonight. So this is uh, Mark chapter 2. And I want to take a look at the availability of Jesus Christ and how he's always available to us. And we want to look at some, several instances in the New Testament there uh, of Jesus Christ and his ministry and his life here on earth. Before we begin, let's bow for a moment of prayer. <clears throat> Father God, certainly it is good to be in your house this evening to hear the music, dear God, that lifts up your name, Father. We thank you for your sweet Holy Spirit that ministers to us, dear God, that's here present right this very moment, dear God. And I just pray, dear God, that you'll use the scriptures to speak to us tonight, dear God. Make us into your likeness, Father. Mold us and shape us into your image that we may give you all the glory. For it's in our Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Usually when a, uh, a person becomes popular or famous, they become very aloof or they become distant. And they build walls up where it kind of makes it difficult to get to these people, particularly for the common people. Um, However, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, his ministry, as it begins to pick up pace a little bit, people find out more and more who he is and what he's about. People become to, become to uh, they flock to him. But we also find in the scriptures that he's totally available to everyone. No matter how busy he may be, he takes time for people, even individuals. So tonight I want us to take a look at several uh, instances in the scriptures where we see the availability of Jesus Christ. You know, like a good soldier, he's always on duty. He's never off duty. Like a good doctor, Jesus Christ is always on call. Now in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, we're not going to look at chapter 1, we're going to look at chapter 2 tonight. But in chapter 1, his critics uh, remained silent and they just kind of murmured and grumbled a little bit. But in chapter 2, his critics will come out of their shells a little bit and will even begin to question the disciples, but not Jesus directly. Chapter 3, we see the persecution will begin. And from that point on till the point uh, that he reaches Calvary, uh, they'll plot to destroy Jesus and they'll plot his death. But tonight in Mark chapter 2, uh, we'll look at the, the, the critics are only going to go as far as questioning Jesus' disciples. So in spite of the persecution that is about to intensify, Jesus Christ is readily available. And I want us to keep that thought in mind as we move through this passage this evening. Uh, Jesus Christ is completely available to us tonight, just like he was uh, in his day and the people that he ministered to. Now look at verse 1, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. We notice that Jesus was available in his teaching. 
And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, okay, after, afterward it was heard that he was in the home, okay. People had become spreading the news that Jesus Christ is back in town. And it could literally read, okay, he was in his house. He was in, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I thought the scripture says, Jesus said, and that can be a bit confusing, where Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus Christ is actually saying here, that he didn't have a permanent home, he didn't have a permanent rest, uh, residence. Uh, evident, evidently in Capernaum, uh, someone who uh, allowed him to use their home and make, it, make their home his, uh, uh, his house, and he made this home his headquarters in Capernaum. And he returns to this house, and everybody hears the news. Now look at verse 2. Mark chapter 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. Now I had to do a little research here, kind of research homes in Palestine in that time and uh, the homes of the wealthier people. Uh, there was always a doorway that led into a foyer and then the foyer kind of went into the rest of the house, developed into the rest of the house. However, the, the homes of the poorer people uh, they had a door, but no foyer. In, in fact, the doors of these homes just opened right up into the street, by the way. In, in the morning, it was a custom to open the door, and that was kind of an open invitation for anybody to come in. It was a kind of like open for business sign, so a person would open the door, and anybody could just walk in and sit down and chat or do whatever. And if the, back in that day, if the common person wanted some privacy, they would shut the door, and people clearly understood what that was. The door was shut. I guess they're up, up to something or busy, so we, we don't go in there. Uh, but evidently, the door was open in the home of Jesus Christ. His door is always open to you and me, by the way, just like he was to people in his day. So there are people coming into the house. In fact, there's so many people there that they're spilling into the streets. Wouldn't it be wonderful if church was like that today? That it would be so packed that they'd, be, they'd have to call out the National Guard to direct traffic, right? It'd be so full. You know, as I thought about this, this the door system and the, the opening and closing of the doors, you know, back in those days, some of the people they didn't have doors, so they was always, the door was always open. I've come to the conclusion, I, I like doors, by the way. I mean, you can get a lot done. By the time somebody pulls in your driveway and you hear them out there, and before they get to your front door, you can clean up stuff and put stuff under the couch and hide toys and, you know, shoot a cat, get the dog off the furniture and all kind of stuff, and, oh, I'm so glad you came by. Yeah? Or put clothes on, put your mesh, you know, fix your hair, whatever. But, but in, in that day, in this area, there was no such thing as a closed door. The doors were all open. Now look at the latter part of, of verse 2, and it says, And he preached the word unto them. Now, in Mark chapter 1, what is he doing? He's preaching the word in the synagogue, right? Now he's teaching the word, he's preaching the word in the doorway of the house. Jesus healed many people, right? But I think sometimes we get it wrong that was not his primary focus, was to heal people, even though he healed many and he healed often. Uh, but Jesus, his purpose was to come and to present the program of God, to preach the opportunity of salvation for mankind. He would heal many people, of course, 
And this was to prove that he was God, that he was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we'll take a look at this in a, in a few moments. However, Jesus Christ came to teach that salvation was available to mankind. And that's in his teaching, by the way. Now, he was available in his teaching, but he is also available in his healing. Look at verse 3 and 4 of this passage. Very familiar passage here. And they came bringing into him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get him in the house because of the crowd, what did they do? They removed the roof, right? And when they had dug an opening, they laid down the pallet on which the paralytic man was laying. Now, these homes were designed in such a way that they had beams that ran from wall to wall. And they were normally about three feet apart. And in the middle of these beams, okay, they would have um, maybe slabs of limestone. And slabs were about three by three feet, okay? So on the top of that, they would throw some brush and some clay, and they'd all pack it in for some kind of installation, right? So this is a pretty thick roof these guys are digging through. On top of that, they would have sod laid on top of that, and grass would often grow on top of that sod. And so, in order to get in the house, to get through the roof, these four men, they had to pull off the dirt, they had to dig a hole to get to the limestone slabs, they had to pull, I don't know, maybe two or three slabs up, which would have been maybe six or nine feet or whatever, just to, for space to lower this man down on his pallet, on his sickbed. And so, they would um, let the, the, more, the, the man down on his mattress, probably mattress probably made of some type of straw that had sticks running through it with two poles for each side for some to grab and so they would probably attach ropes onto that and they lower this paralytic man down into the middle of the room now look at verse 6 by the way and there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their heart now look at the crowd that's there by the way in this home, in the middle of the living room, <clears throat> are doctors of the law, scribes. Now, in that day, the, the rabbis believed if you had some kind of uh, really bad, hideous illness or sickness, that meant that you were some kind of really hideous, wicked sinner, okay? They put the two and two together. You know, they believed that you know, sickness was, in fact, the hand of God on a person. So sickness and sin were inseparable in their minds. If a person was sick, like this man, he was a really gross, vile sinner. And so these doctors of the law had ostracized this man from society. He was an outcast because he was paralyzed. Okay? And the Greek word for here is a big old long Greek word. And I have a strong concordance that I look up all these words in. And they give you a really good definition but they don't really make sense to me how to pronounce some of these Greek words. So <laughs> instead of trying to throw something out there, that what in the world is he talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about, so that's why I'm not going to talk about it, okay? <laughs> but the word simply means that he was paralyzed, probably from the neck down. That's why he's on the bed. If he was just paralyzed from the waist down, maybe he would be in a chair. But he's in a bed. Now, often we read this, we kind of read it as somebody observing the scene, and we're kind of sitting back watching it, right? But think of this man, what he was thinking, and how he felt at this time, by the way. 
He was lowered down in the middle of this room. His accusers were there. You think he was pretty embarrassed? Probably he was, this is probably the most embarrassed he's ever been in his life. You know, he was probably so embarrassed, he was probably one of his arms might have fell off the, the, the stretcher or water off the slat, and maybe his, his head kind of dangled awkwardly to the side, and maybe he was paralyzed. Now, he couldn't help it. Maybe he was drooling out of the mouth or whatever. You know, you, I, I don't know, but his mind was alert. His body was weak and paralyzed, but his mind was sharp. And he probably felt the gaze, the stare of the Pharisees in their critical eyes, like Norman was talking about this morning. They were quick to condemn and quick to criticize. But what does Jesus Christ do? How does Jesus Christ respond? Three things, very briefly. Look at verse 5. When Jesus Christ saw their faith, he said unto the sick man, the paralytic, the man with the palsy, Son, notice that word, Son, thy sins be forgiven. And that word, Son, is called technon, that's a Greek word, which means little child. And it's an affectionate term used by a mother for their children or a father for their children. Jesus looked down upon this man who was probably not only paralyzed physically, but he was probably paralyzed by fear, afraid. But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, looks down at this man and says, Child, with all the compassion of an available Savior, he looks at this man and said, Child. I wonder what was going on in his, this man's mind at this time. The Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of this universe, the great physician, says, child. We're told by Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2, don't turn there, that Jesus also said, take courage, child, take courage. Now, in the Greek language, there's two words there combined to make up this word courage, and it's, of course, translated courage. But the first word for courage is, uh, portrays the idea of a person who's scared to death. Perhaps you've had times in your life when you encountered something or some kind of task at hand that you had to drum up some courage or drum up some nerve to do something, right? Maybe you've been there. I remember as a young boy, we had a, a horse named Lightning, and she had a barn. Her barn was at the edge of the property. And it, back then, everything was woods. There was no houses around. It was pitch black, dark outside. Now, as a little boy, seven or eight years old, right, going out at night, and I'd hear some noise outside, I'd run out, I'd tell my daddy, Daddy, somebody's stealing the horse, I know somebody's stealing, as if they wanted my horse, like, she's on, like, she's like Trigger or something, like, they're stealing my horse, they steal, the rustlers are there stealing my horse, watching too many cowboy movies, by the way, but anyway, he said, well, if you were, go out there and check, so I'm out there with the flashlight, looking around and peeping around, and I see eyes in the woods staring at me, and I I think they're like the, the boogeyman out there trying to get me when all it was was deer and raccoons and possums looking at me. And I'd go up there in the barn and, oh, I made it. She said, okay, nobody stole the horse. But when you're seven, eight years old and you go out in the pitch black dark like that, that's kind of, and along the way I'd, I'd try to drum up some courage. I'd hum or whistle or do a little something there to take my mind off it. Now you've probably done that too as a child, right? Maybe, maybe it is an adult, I don't, I don't know, but... <clears throat> 
There's another word for courage. And this means one without fear. Now, the first word means I've got to drum up the courage to do something. The second word means one without fear. This person has courage because there's no fear in them at all. There's no need to whistle. There's no need to hum because they have no fear. And this is the word that Jesus Christ used in speaking to this man, this paralyzed man. He says, take courage, my child. Or other, in, in other words, he says, there's absolutely no reason to fear, child. Now, the man's accusers were there, right? But Jesus says, take courage, fear not. This man knew that he was a defiled person in the eyes of the ones in that room, his accusers. Right? But Jesus says, take heart, take courage. There is no need to fear. Thirdly, look at verse 5, chapter 2. In the same breath, Son, thy sins be forgiven. Imagine that. Having forgiveness of sins from Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to elaborate that point. We'll get, get to that later, but Another thing about Jesus Christ, he's, he was available to his critics. The people who criticized the ministry of Jesus Christ, he was available to them as well. Look at verse 8, the first part of verse 8. Now, all this has happened, right? And so it says immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they, the scribes or the critics, we're reasoning that way within themselves, okay? So in verse 7, back up, the scribes or his critics were thinking, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And by the way, they had a law for blasphemers, by the way. The scribes would, would hang them from a tree, stone them, then they'd cut them down and bury him in an act of shame. But in Mark chapter 8, I mean Mark chapter 2, verse 8, the last part of verse 8, it says, Immediately Jesus said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? See, Jesus could read their mind, right? He knew what they were thinking. And notice his response. I think it's pretty, pretty important here how he responds. And, you know, a good test for you and me is how we handle criticism. A good test of character is the way we respond when someone levels criticism against our character or at our character. You know, we never find Jesus Christ getting all over these critics and scribes and say, what are you thinking that for? He doesn't have a dot. He doesn't fuss and carry on at them. All he says, as recorded in verses 8 through 10, is why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why Jesus Christ is healing anyway, so people would look to him as being God. Okay? Now look at verse 10, the last part of verse 10, and verse 11. He said to the, the paralyzed man, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Now, now in verse 12, the first part of verse 12, just drop down. 
We're told here in this verse, verse 12, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone. Isn't that amazing? Did he have any doubt, this paralyzed man? None whatsoever. He picked up that pallet and went home with it. And I don't know, he probably threw it away, right? Because he no longer would need that pallet anymore. This was a healed man. He was healed physically, but also he was healed spiritually. Because Jesus Christ said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice the, the stair steps here of, of Jesus' logic. And Chuck Swindoll made a good point of that. And I'm just going to parrot some of his stuff back, by the way. Uh, Jesus Christ was proving his point, And he was using the rabbi's argument. Remember, they're arguing about, well, who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus is telling him, look at these, these steps right there. He says, no one can be healed unless forgiven. All right. No one can be healed unless he forgives their sins first. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins, right? Paralyzed man was healed. Jesus did forgive his sins. The conclusion is Jesus must be God. It was an undeniable argument, right? No wonder what his critics did with that. Nothing. They went home. How can you argue with that? The way that Jesus Christ dealt with his critics was fascinating. And what a physician Jesus was. Imagine he comes to the sick man. He gives a perfect diagnosis. He heals the man completely. And Jesus even paid the bill. Isn't that wonderful? That's better than Obamacare, any kind of insurance plan you can have, right? Wow, what a great physician. Jesus did it all. Now look at verse 12. The last part of verse 12. And see what they say. It says, they were all amazed and were glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. The crowd is just utterly astonished about what they had witnessed. Now notice another thing about Jesus Christ. And Norman touched on it this morning and did a wonderful job with it. Look at Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 13 and 14. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, which is Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Now, Capernaum, okay, it was right on the Sea of Galilee, but, but it was kind of an intersection for, for many commercial roads. In fact, the travel from Egypt to, to go to Galilee, you probably went through Capernaum. It was the center of a very thriving economy, and there were two classes of tax collectors there. The one class was called the Gabbai, okay? And uh, these men would tax your property, they would tax your income, and other stated things. And it was kind of difficult for these, these guys to get wealthy because these were fixed rates, they were fixed taxes, okay? Now, the next class of tax collectors in the Greek word, it says moke. That's the word moke, okay? And these men became quite wealthy because they taxed everything they could touch, right? So if somebody went out hunting and caught a rabbit or they went fishing and caught a fish and to get to your house, you pass by one of their tax booths, right? 
And so you would pay tax on that fish or that rabbit or whatever you caught because the tax collector's table would probably be right at the intersection. So everywhere you went, <laughs> tax collectors were there with their hands out. Probably, I don't know, kind of sounds like our IRS today, but who, you know, I don't want to get on that. But <laughs> if somebody went shopping, they, they brought some things, they bought some things, they would pay taxes on, on these things. They'd have to pay the tax collector. And there were no stated tax rates on these items, right? So these guys could charge whatever they want. Whatever they could get from you, they would charge you. It was a way to get rich and get rich quick, by the way. And there was two types of mokes, okay? Uh, there was one kind called the, the great moquets, all right? So the great moquet, he would hire somebody to sit at his table for him. He would hire somebody to sit at the collector's table for him because he was worried about his reputation, okay? He was worried about what other people may think of him. Re remember that Jewish people, they had uh, bought the tax collection right from the Roman government, right? And they were considered by the Jews to be traitors, and so these great moquets, they didn't want any, anybody to know that they were a tax collector. So they would hire somebody to collect the taxes. Now, the little moquets, they were generally too cheap and too greedy to hire anyone. All right? He sat at the table himself because he didn't want a middleman. He didn't want anybody collecting his taxes for him. He wanted to get it all for himself. Now look at verse 14. We read about Matthew here. It says, Matthew, or Levi, was sitting in the tax booth. So he's a little okay. He's collecting his own taxes. Uh, Matthew was cheap, and he was greedy. He didn't care about his reputation. He could care less if you called him names or called him a traitor, by the way. Matthew is in it for the money. He was a little okay. Uh, so we find Jesus Christ coming to him and saying, in verse 14, the last part of verse 14... Follow me. And what did Matthew do? He said, well, let me think about it for a while. i got to go home and talk to my wife. You know, let me think it over for a while. What did Jesus Christ do? He says he got up and followed him. Jesus made the call, and Matthew responded. Jesus is still calling people today out to himself. Unfortunately, many are not responding Jesus Christ is available still today as he was in his day, available to a needy world. My, how we need Jesus Christ today in our world. Notice what Matthew does, uh, as recorded in, in verse 15 here, what Matthew or Levi the publican does. And it happened, he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Now, a lot of translations use the word publican, okay, for tax collector. Not republican, but publican, okay? Some of them are just as crooked, okay, as, as the publicans, but that's the, the publican is just a general term for tax collectors, okay? The, the term publican is a word used for one who did public duty, and Matthew was a publican. So as you study uh, the Gospels, you study through the Gospels, you'll realize that publicans, in the eyes of the Jewish world, they were just as bad 
as the Gentiles, right? They were the low lives. They were the scum, okay? Look at verse 16 of, of, of Mark 2. And it says, And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, the critics are saying, how does he eat with people of the soil? How does he eat with these dirty people? How can he associate with these, these dirty people? Well, the answer is in verse 17. Take a look at it. In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So Jesus Christ uh, was at this feast, and maybe it was Matthew's resignation, okay? Maybe he's resigning from his job as a tax collector, and so he calls his friends together, and he has a guest speaker, okay? And the guest speaker is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew, he's going to tell everybody what he's doing. He's going to tell all his tax collector buddies and all of the crowd that he ran with that he's quitting his job. He was going to follow this man named Jesus. So Matthew gathered all these people and the feast was prepared and Jesus was right in the middle of them. And, and in fact, they're not seated, they're reclining, okay? And the way they, way they did it, they would recline on their left elbow and just kind of sit back, and, and the table would be before them, and they would face the food. And this was a sign of closeness, okay? You only did this with very close friends and family. And if you eat a meal with an, a, another person, it meant that you were very close with that person, okay? And so what was Jesus doing at the gathering? And Jesus said, he stated, I didn't come to call the righteous, they don't need me. Jesus says, I'm a physician. I don't make house calls on the well because they don't need me. I go to the sick because they need me. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you about a, a story. You uh, Redwood, he was an old preacher from England, and he wrote a book, and I think it was in 1931, called God in the Slums. And he tells the story of a woman who lived in the, in the dock district of London. And she lived with a Chinese man, and they had what was called back then a half-caste baby or a, a half-breed. And she was considered an, an outcast to society. So the woman had heard about a ladies' Bible study. She decided to go, in fact, and she brought her baby with her. And she enjoyed it so much to this Bible study, and she went back week after week. Finally, about a month or two into it, the vicar came to her and says, ma'am, I don't want you to return anymore. And imagine the shock on this lady's face, told that she's no longer welcome at the Bible study. And of course, she wanted to know why. His answer was this, if you keep coming, those women will never come back to my church. Her eyes naturally filled with tears. And she says to the vicar, I know that I'm a sinner, but isn't there anywhere a sinner can go? How sad is that? This church, this Bible study, didn't want this lady around because she was considered an outcast. But that's the same very people that Jesus Christ called, right? It's very sad when the church does that, by the way. 
In Jesus' time, there was a place where sinners could go. And they could go to Jesus. The same today. You know, I, I, I fear today the, the, the modern church. Um, we build our buildings and we start all our programs and we say, if you want to come, come to us. But if you come, you've got to act like us. You've got to look like us. You've got to be like us. I believe we missed the point of what a church should be. You know, when we study the availability of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's mind-boggling to me how he was available all the time and he welcomed anybody that would come to him. And I'm afraid if Jesus Christ lived here in the flesh in the 21st century, I think that many in the church would spurn him just like he was in his day. I just want to mention a few things in closing and some take-home points uh, as we talk about the availability of Jesus Christ. I think they're very simple uh, yet profound. First thing, Jesus Christ is available to you when you admit you need him. As simple as that, Jesus Christ is available. Have you ever told him that you wanted him? The question is, will you make him your Lord and Savior? Have you ever done that? Jesus Christ is available. You don't have to make an appointment with him. He's available 24-7. In fact, he died for you. He shed his blood for you. If you realize, perhaps tonight, that you need him, there's great news. He's available to all that will come to him. Secondly, Jesus Christ is available to others who are willing to serve him. Okay? As you read and study the Bible, I suggest you just read a passage over and over and over. Because there's many things that in casual reading we just overlook. And, and that's what I did with this passage. I just read it over and over and over and studied and got my commentaries out. Because I, I missed a lot of things that was very important. Uh, in fact, I think many times when you read the scriptures over and over, there's something new you read every time. It, it's interesting to me uh, that the possibility of Jesus Christ's ministry was because who followed him or who would serve him, okay? Think of the examples. The house that Jesus was in. Somebody had to loan him that house, right? Jesus didn't have a house of his own. He didn't own a home. Somebody loaned him that house. That person is never introduced. We don't know who he is. Some think it's Simon Peter, but I don't know. We aren't told that. What about the people who fixed the roof? The guys who repaired the roof. I don't know how many they were. I don't, the Bible doesn't record their name, but they were serving, right? They were serving others. And I can imagine as they were working on that roof, they probably had the door open, right? People were coming in, and they were pointing right through that hole right there. That's where they lowered the paralyzed man down, and Jesus healed him on the spot, right in that hole right there. What a conversation piece, right, to have that. And then don't go tearing holes in your house and roof and all that kind of stuff. But, but imagine these guys. You don't know who they are. You don't know whose house it was. You don't know who cleaned up. What about the men and women who uh, prepared the meal? I, probably more women. And I just threw men in there because I want to be politically correct. I mean, there are men who cook, and, and some get in the way in the kitchen, and I'm one of those ones, so I don't even go in the kitchen, right? But... The men and women were there, and they prepared the feast uh, given to Matthew's friends. And yet, we, we don't give, they're not listed here. We don't know their names. They're not in the text here. 
They were busy preparing this feast because Jesus was going to be there. He was going to be here in this house. Okay? He's going to share the gospel of the kingdom. And we're going to serve and we're going to make it possible for others to come. You know, there's a lot of hidden truth there. Hidden servants that we don't see. But God's recording it all in heaven, right? He's taking note. Because these people were willing to serve. Are you willing to serve? Jesus Christ is available to others because others are willing to serve. And I think the question is, if you really know him, will you serve him? There's a story that's uh, been used many times. It, it occurred right after World War II. Uh, Europe was left to pick up the pieces. And one of the tragic aftermaths of that war, of course, was the orphans roaming the streets. Uh, uh, many of them starving. And, and the story goes on, there was a GI that was, they were in London. He was going back to his barracks. And he turned the corner of, uh, 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 in his Jeep and, and saw a little orphan boy there, a little ragtag-looking kid, a little dirty little guy. He was looking through the window of a pastry shop. With, I can imagine his nose was just pressed up against the glass, eyes that big around, probably salivating out of his, as he watched the man do, you know, work the, uh, knead the dough or whatever, you, whatever term you use. And he put together donuts and he put them in the oven and he'd take them out and they'd be them fresh donuts like, you know, you have the hot sign at Krispy Kreme. So uh, they were right there in the window and right there in this little boy's nose. So the, the GI watched all that and he said, how sad. So he screeched to a stop and got out of his Jeep and went up to the little boy and said, hey, would you like some of those donuts? And the little kid, what do you think? He said, no. Sure, mister, I sure would. So the GI goes into the donut shop. He buys a dozen donuts. He goes out and hands them to the little boy and he turns to walk away, and he feels a tug on his jacket. And there the little boy's looking at him, and he says, Mr., are you God? The little boy looking at him, Mr., are you God? You know, the truth is, folks, that Jesus Christ has come, and he's totally available. And he needs those who claim to know him to be little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ, right? Is that your name this evening, little Christ? Have you made it possible for someone to sit at that feast at the table? Have you made it possible for someone to hear the message about Jesus Christ? Have you heard people say, you must be from God because you're available and you give of yourselves for God's service. I don't know where you're at tonight and what you may need. And Norman's going to come and lead us in a moment of invitation, or Keith will or somebody will. Um, whatever you need tonight, whether you need to know Christ personally uh, as your Lord and Savior, you come, because he's here, okay? Some people say, I'll do it later, or I'll do it, I'll put it off, I'll do it later. There's no such thing as putting off. He says, he says today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And then he says to Christians, if, you, if something is in your life that's separating you from God, make it right. Why wait? Well, I'll do it when my mother-in-law moves out or some nonsense like that, right? If you won't do it now, chances are you may never do it. Maybe God is speaking to you tonight about doing some ministry for him, some kind of service, right? There's something available for you in this church, right? 
Whatever it is you need to do tonight, I just urge you and I pray that you'll come.